Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. <laughs> what are you looking at? I was enjoying. Uh, I was enjoying the way that you were doing the intro. Like you started with like a, a very hearty howdy, and then you kind of went into. A very, uh, it was the second part. You always say a big howdy. Um, but uh, you went into just like, it's like, hey, everybody, we're doing this. And it just seemed like a very uh, oh, subdued wow. kind of tone. Oh, I was really I'm glad you liked it. it. Yeah. I don't like that. I don't want to sound like some NPR yeah, exactly. uh, person. I'm not Carl Castle. I think he died. <laughs> <laughs> so it appears um, nobody's Carl Castle I, now. It, uh, it shows how long it's been since I listened to NPR, that that's my reference from like 12 years sure. ago. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know who any of the new NPR people are. Uh, yeah, I mean, I uh, what little I listen to NPR, I found it extremely soothing. Uh, I like that. Uh, it's it's that Bob Ross thing as well, just like a certain tone, just like, you know what? Maybe things are going to be okay. It's just that yeah. sort of thing. Uh, what I used to love, and not in the way that I think I was supposed to, and I don't know if they still do it, a game show called Says You. Hmm. And it was like, I liked it because the questions were like ab- often about like, grammar and syntax and like stuff that I'm interested in. And so I, in that way I liked it very earnestly. I also perversely liked how bad the jokes were. Oh, but like smart people, bad, like smart, like people who think they're clever. Can can you, but no, I didn't know. I can't think. Did they know they were bad or did they think we've really done? No, I'm sure among their social group, those, these kind of jokes would kill at cocktail parties (laughs) or whatever. But, uh, uh, yeah, I would often just sort of cackle at how ridiculously corny, um, and self-satisfied the, the, the jokes on says you were, uh, but that's not what we're here to talk. We're here to talk about the movies we've seen, uh, over the last two weeks, I've seen seven that I can talk about starting with, uh, one of them, it was one of my like low key most anticipated movies of the fall. Okay, Clint Eastwood's Cry Macho. Right. Uh, did you see this? Is that is this on your list? No, it isn't. Uh, okay, my uh, list is all is unfortunately all rewatches oh, as a function of yeah. school. Uh, so yeah, um, Cry Macho I think is uh, unfortunately uh, it was a it, it seems like a bit of a. It feels like Clint Eastwood doing a cover version of his own like late later sure. stuff. Like the mule from 2018, I think. Mm-hmm. Is that right? 2018, 2019, That's, maybe? Uh, um, 18 or 19. I don't remember exactly. Uh, I thought it was really good. Like didn't, uh, I, I don't think that movie got nearly as much, uh, attention and respect as it should have. I really liked the mule. Um, but Crimacho is, uh, it, it doesn't, it, it, it seems so superficial compared to the, the, the two movies that it reminds me of most are the mule, uh, and Grand Torino as that's, far as of the, the vibe I got of the, both. uh, of Clint Eastwood movies. Cause I'll tell you the, so the story is it takes place in the late seventies. Clint Eastwood plays a sort of former, like a, uh, um, a former rodeo star who gets, uh, um, tasked by, uh, character by Dwight Yoakam to go down into Mexico and retrieve Dwight Yoakam's son from his mother who uh, is Mexican lives in Mexico um, and, and, and bring him back because Dwight Yoakam thinks the boy is being abused or something in that mm-hmm. um, uh, am I uh, I feel like I'm 
sorry, I'm looking at my levels. No, I'm, I'm okay. I was just talking too quiet. Okay. All right. Um, uh, we'll leave all, we'll leave all that did in. Did we do the sound uh, check? We did we the did. sound oh, check. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's why it was like my, but I think I checked louder than I'm actually talking, sure, which is usually sure. a you problem. It is. Yes. Um, anyway, so, uh, he go, he goes down there and then, so he has to find the boy and, 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 and bring him back. And so you've got the, um, uh, you've got the Grand Torino thing of Clint Eastwood paired with a young kid who's non-white. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the mule thing of him being like, a an old salt way past his prime, but doing a sort of like going on like a little adventure. Yeah. But there's none of the self-awareness of either movie of either of those two movies that I like a lot. It, um, it doesn't, and the, the, the screenplay is also not nearly as sharp as the mule mm-hmm. was in, in terms of, um, drawing characters. It's, it's a very, like I said, it's very superficial. Um, you know, both, both the characters in Gran Torino and the mule are like, there are protagonists and we're like on their side, but we see a lot of, a lot of ways in which they're not great guys or have yeah. not been great guys in the past. In Cry Macho, this character, the only bad things in the past are things that happened to him or to right. his family. You know, he got bucked by a horse and broke his back. Later, his wife and son died in the car accident. Like, he just seems like he's just meant to be a good guy and there's no like conflict. And right. so like, but it feels like the movie thinks they're supposed to be because there's like the, the, the best part of the movie there uh, it should come as no surprise that the best part of the movie is when the movie sort of like, uh, slows down because mm-hmm. I, I, I have all sorts of criticism about, uh, about the movie, but I still like Clint Eastwood as a director. Um, uh, I like the way the movie moves it still moves like a Clint Eastwood movie or specifically in this one place it doesn't move there's a part where they are there's an extended part where he and the boy are hiding out from some people in this town before they can like make a run for the border they have to hide out because some people are looking for the boy and so there's just a long period of them in this tiny tiny Mexican town like befriending locals finding odd jobs to do um it's absolutely the best part of, yeah. of, of of the movie. But then when they're going to leave, this woman like tells Clint Eastwood's character, like Mike, I think is it Mike, you're a good man. And I wanted to like, it feels like it's supposed to be a big moment, but watching the movie, I was like, yeah, no shit. Like <laughs> he's been a good guy the entire time. That's yeah. kind of, um, uh, but I like, uh, there's, there's a lot to like about the movie, especially if you like Clint Eastwood as a director, which I do. Uh, I think, it reveals, I think his worldview comes across in a kind of unapologetic way. There's a, it's almost funny how, you know, almost the entire movie takes place in Mexico and <laughs> Mike, Clint Eastwood's character, just like any person he meets, he just starts speaking to them in English. And it's like, it's basically <laughs> like, if you don't understand what I'm saying, that's your problem. Yeah. That's definitely, I, that, that, that's a funny, uh, uh, point of view. And it, and it comes close to that sort of like self critique, I think of maybe right. Gran Torino, but, uh, that's the, that's as close as it, as it gets. I just mostly, I found the, the, the soup to be too thin here, but you know, with the sound off, it still like looks and feels like, uh, um, maybe not with the sound, maybe with the, with the dialogue stems, uh, right. drop down, it looks and, and, and feels like a cleanest movie. It's, there are definitely worse movies that I've seen in 2021, but, uh, going into it as a Clint Eastwood fan, I've, uh, I, I found it to be a disappointment. 
Now, let me ask you this. Between this and Dear Evan Hansen, there has been a lot of talk about people being too old for their characters. Is Clint Eastwood, who, of course, there's a toughness to him, but like he, he looks, and based on what I saw, sounds kind of frail. And it's, it's hard to believe, just based on what you have said, that this character by Dwight Yoakam is like, I need somebody to go and retrieve my son. Hey, I know. How about the local 90-year-old? <laughs> yeah. Like, it just uh, feels like I mean, maybe the character are, should be in his 60s or maybe 70s. There are things that I'm leaving out that kind of explain um, in, in terms of Dwight Yoakam and Clint Eastwood's character's relationship that okay. kind, kind of makes uh, makes that make, make sense. But yeah, I did notice, like, there's like a there's a part where he like punches a guy and I'm like, I don't think that would yeah. uh, really like knock that guy on his ass. There's also like, I, I very much noticed like you see Clint Eastwood's character riding a horse. Mm-hmm. You never see him getting on or getting off a horse. A, st- <laughs> a student mentioned that to me really? I, I, at the beginning of every class. I say like, what movies have you seen? And uh, he said, cry macho. And he's a big Clint Eastwood fan. And he goes, Oh, it feels good to see him on a horse. And I, and then I said like, how does he look on a horse? He goes, he looks really good, but he goes, I, I noticed that they didn't show him getting on or off. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, yeah that's I, about I very right. much noticed that too. Uh, anyway, so, uh, that's too much time to spend, but you know what? I'm always happy to talk about Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Um, next up, I watched a movie that is, uh, from 1993 that, uh, has been, has been, uh, remastered. Uh, the director's name is, I'm not sure how you say it. Hey, Hale. Jerima or Haley Jerima. Mm. Um, the movie is called Sankofa. Uh, and it is a, uh, it's mostly a movie that takes place on a plantation during the okay. uh, slavery period, but it starts in the modern day or, you know, 1993 modern day with a, um, uh, an African American model doing a photo shoot in Ghana, like, um, I don't know if you know, I can't remember what it's called, that famous like fort in Ghana, which is where a lot of the slaves were. Hmm. It's, it's where a lot of people who were enslaved set off on the, where the slave ships set off for America hmm. and Trinidad and, and uh, those, those places. So she's doing a photo shoot there and um, a sort of local person who sort of considers himself an historian says something to her, maybe, I don't know, puts a curse on her maybe. And then she suddenly finds herself hmm. transported into the body of an American slave. Um, so, uh, uh, it's, it, it's definitely interesting to realize, to think about how many movies about life as a slave are made with white audiences in mind. Sure. And this is one that's very much not. Um, cause sometimes I think with the, the even films by black filmmakers, like 12 years a slave, it does feel like there's maybe a little bit too much of the, like we really need to dwell on the horrors, you know, because right. it's about like making white people think about <laughs> this, sure. you know, like, um, there are multiple terrible things that happen in, in Santa Cofa, but there's a matter of factness, to it that I think, uh, was, seemed, um, different to me. I did find it kind of like clearly made by a black filmmaker about a woman who is 
I, I don't know. Is she being punished? Is this, it's feel like a twilight zone type of lesson right. or whatever. That felt like, that feels like something I don't know if I need to like wait into. <laughs> like it's, that's a, uh, it's not as though the character is saying like slavery wasn't a big deal. And it's like, aha, or was she saying something like that? No, she wasn't. But okay. just the fact that she's like there to like, you know, roll around in the sand in a bikini. Sure. Where this awful thing happened. Okay. I feel like she's being, she could be seen as a little callous. I guess, but, uh, but uh, like, that's what I'm saying. It feels like to a certain extent, it's maybe not my place to like comment on that conversation that's happening clearly inside this community that I'm not a part of. Um, but it definitely, um, stuck out to me, but the movie itself, uh, is, you know, it's a, it, it has a plot as it goes on, but mostly once you get to the American, um, plantation, uh, it's mostly just a, a, I hate to use something as like frothy as like slice of life when like right. we're talking about enslaved people, but like that's, it's about their lives and, and their, and their relationships, um, to one another. And there, there are little things like, um, there's like a, um, a, a a mother and son who like don't advertise to people that they're mother and son. Cause they don't want to be like separated sure. as a, in a vindictive way. There's also like the, um, the slaves who were born in America and the more recent arrivals and the difference in religion hmm. that the, the American born slaves are more likely to be Christians. And the, obviously the African slaves are bringing the, the religions that they practiced there. And there's that sort of, uh, push and pull. The movie's also, um, very, uh, um, uh, warmly photographed, um, which I don't think is out of the ordinary, I think for, movies about slavery actually because mm-hmm. the, the American South is a beautiful place and I think like yeah. that juxtaposition is tempting to a lot of filmmakers um, you know even like 12 Years a Slave Django Unchained like these are uh, very beautiful looking movies yeah um, but uh, the last thing I'll say that I really enjoyed um, about the movie is that the parts that take place in Ghana the music is uh, like tribal music like indigenous to that uh that area mm-hmm. once we get to america the music in the movie is all jazz um oh okay and it feels like that's an intentional comment of yeah. like this is these are part, these things are part of the same continuum uh, i really liked that that touch i liked the music uh, a lot um definitely a, a really fascinating interesting uh watch Sankofa. Yeah. all right i'll do one more and then i'll toss to you and uh, I am already. This movie isn't hasn't come out or won't come out for a few weeks. Uh, though I am allowed to talk about it, okay, because of the nature of the screening it was a public screening that I went to um, an advanced screening uh, through the American Cinematheque. Um, but it also played Sundance, so I can also I already know, even though the movie doesn't movie doesn't come out for a while, that I'm in the minority on Fran Cranes's Mass. Right. Yes, I, I uh, saw on Letterboxd. Yeah, uh, I did. I, I, there's. I don't want to be dismissive because there are so many things about this movie that are done so well for a first time director to balance the amount of things that he does for a while before I think he loses control of the movie um, to, to, to for a younger, even Frank Kranz's 
probably our age, maybe younger. I don't know. I guess we're not that young anymore, are we? He might be a little, um, I feel like he might be slightly older, but I could see him being in his early 40s. I'm not sure exactly. Um, but he's, you know, working with older, like the, the, the cast are, are, are older yeah. actors than, than he is. I guess Martha Plimpton is probably the youngest. And then it's Jason Isaacs and Dowd and Reed Bernie, if you mm-hmm. know who he is. I, I looked, I looked him up the other day. His name didn't sound familiar. And then I saw his IMDb. I was like, so Oh, okay. he's yeah. the guy who gets choked in the 40 year old version. Yes. Um, but he also, I would recommend, um, I would recommend a lot of episodes of high maintenance to you. Mm-hmm. And you can like, there are kind of storylines that go on, but it's really, I don't know if you know the nat- the nature of that show, high maintenance, that there's like a guy who's like a weed delivery guy in New York oh, city. Yes, yes. And so every episode, there's just like one or two stories that the people that, so they're, they're kind of standalone, like little yeah. mini movies. And there's one where Reed Bernie, um, plays a guy who had lived in New York city in like the eighties and had tried his hand at being a Broadway actor. Maybe had a little bit of success, but eventually ended up, uh, giving up moving to the suburbs and becoming a drama teacher. And now he's brought a field trip to Broadway to see a show. And he's kind of like relive, like meeting up with old mm. friends and reliving. It's a really, really great episode. Um, and we yeah, read Bernie's great in that, but uh, I'm off track. Um, so the, yeah, there's a lot to, to, to recommend about the, the movie. Ultimately, I, I, I think it's um, undone by a couple of big mistakes. Do you know the premise of the movie? I do. Okay. Um, for those who don't, because I went in not knowing the premise of the movie. Oh, interesting. Um, for those who, if you want to remain uh, un, unspoiled, I say it's, you know, people, parents meeting up after something horrible has happened um in in the it's six years prior uh the movie makes clear um and i think there's a part i just just talking about sankofa i talked about that like the the way that so many other movies about slavery feel like a little bit too sadistic almost or there's a there's an exploitation mm-hmm. and there there comes a part in mass where the events that you know brought these parents together. Yeah. That's not right. The right way, right way to say it, but the thing they're there to discuss, the events are, are talked about in great detail. Okay. And I've, I, um, it felt kind of exploitative to me to, to hear people just talking about terrible things happening to children's bodies. Hmm. It, it wasn't, uh, oh boy. Yeah. It, it wasn't pleasant for me, but, um, but then I also think there's in a different way, I think Frank Kranz maybe from, I would say for most, for the first half of the movie, I was like, I can't believe the restraint of this guy. This doesn't feel like a first time filmmaker. This feels like so self-assured. Um, and then two things happen. Uh, one, the camera goes from being on a tripod to being handheld. And then also the aspect ratio of the movie changes, um, at two different parts. And that it feels so self-conscious, you know, it feels so deterministic. Um, it, it feels like a film school, like, uh, idea of yeah. like, well, the characters were going through this, but then this thing has changed. So now I'm going to do this to illustrate the change. And it's so obvious. And so yeah. hangs a lantern on a movie that has actually been, aesthetically and formalistically pretty subtle, uh, um, up until that point. Uh, and it, uh, it really kind of jarred me out of the movie and I never got all the way back into it. It feels, 
I mean, it, it, it obviously it's the premise of the movie. It's, you know, essentially four people in a room for, for most of the movie. Um, it's, it's kind of stagey. Uh, and, um, once that spell is broken, it's hard. It was hard to get back into it. I do want to call out, um, an actress who's not one of the four named Brita wool who, um, so the place, um, the reason the movie's called Mass is because the local Episcopal Church has agreed to use their, like, the room they normally use for, like, AA meetings and stuff mm-hmm. um, for for this meeting. And, um, yeah, Brita Wool plays uh, the representative from the church who's just, oh, like, okay. there to set things up for them. And the, there's a there's a long part of this movie before the main characters show up where it's just Brita Wool and the, like, young like teenage volunteer Hmm. getting ready and then like one of the couple's lawyers comes and it's just like that whole scene that whole couple of scenes that whole sequence before the main characters actually show up is uh so well done so well acted most specifically by by uh wool but by the other two as as well um and surprisingly funny for what the movie is going to become uh, and I think it, it really helps. It's a really nice opening. And, uh, I don't know, maybe like I said, once I, once the movie lost me, it lost me so hard. I think maybe because it went back on what I thought it was doing mm-hmm. earlier and it became a little bit more, uh, simplistic. Um, anyway, Brita, well, I, I, the only thing I knew her from, she was on, do you remember that, um, TV series, lifetime TV series, unreal, about it was about like behind the scenes of a oh, like, yeah, like, the yeah. bachelor type of yeah. show that was like good for six episodes and then like became terrible and somehow got four seasons. Oh. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, on the first season, Brita will played the, the Christian contestant on the bat <laughs> on the bachelor bachelor. Um, and she was really good on that too. Uh, anyway, uh, I think it's time for you to talk. I've talked for almost 20 minutes straight. Okay, so um, all of my movies are rewatches this week, um, and uh, hopefully, hopefully next week uh, it will be different, and it should be. Um, but yeah, I the first film, and these are all films that we that I watched in in various classes. And the first film is Fritz Lang's Scarlet Street. Uh, when talking about in my in my history of uh, American cinema class, I get to uh, there's a week in which I talk about like American genres and stuff, and uh, film noir is usually a crowd pleaser with uh, with the students, and so sure, it's usually either Double Indemnity or Scarlet Street. And uh, this time, and last time it was Double Indemnity, so this time it's Scarlet Street. Um, <laughs> that's for your own. That's for me. Sanity, yeah. Because uh, I think I do. I think Double Indemnity is a better movie, but Scarlet Street, there's just such a such a, a, for lack of a better term, a wackiness to that movie. Like it's, you know, it's not merely with double indemnity. You get like your main character who, uh, and various other films about like the everyman who, who is lured into, uh, this, uh, kind of story. Um, and often the, the characters may be a little bit bored or lonely or whatever it is. Scarlet Street, it, it is this idea of like just the henpecked husband played <laughs> perversely by Edward G. Robinson, like this this Hollywood tough guy. And in a way it's like it's like this this feels almost offensive if it weren't so absurd. So I think yeah. Wait, purposely see, absurd. Um uh The Red House, the movie with Edward no, G. Robinson, where he plays like a 
small town farmer. <laughs> it's, so, it's so funny that it's, it's a really good movie. Yeah. And I, I, don't get me wrong. I think he does a very good job in, in Scarlet story. I think he plays the role, but like I, I had forgot, there are a few things I had forgotten. Like I remember him, like not only does he do the dishes and the cooking for his, his wife, but he also wears like this f- particularly frilly and flowery uh, apron while he does it. Right. But I had forgotten and I shouldn't have because it winds up being a big plot point. Um, that she has a big painting of her first husband uh, up oh, just, no. you know, and she just looks at it so admiringly and just like, yeah, you know, you're married to me now, right? Oh, it doesn't matter to you. Okay. Got it. Uh, and it's just like, it's, it's so like he, his, his unhappiness. This is not a, this is not a, a brief encounter situation where uh, the, it is a loving marriage, but just a little bit mundane. Like it's the kind of thing where everyone's like, he, I, I think it's safe to say uh, his wife is a bit toxic um, and, and she essentially drives him into the arms of, of this character, uh, Kitty. So that was that was something that I had forgotten was just how I think self-consciously ridiculous and over the top his home life is. The other takeaway that I got a few years ago, I watched a movie called Wagon Master, which is a, a Western from, I think, 1950. And it is a marvelous film. And as I was watching it, the vi- doesn't it sound like though, like uh, like a reality series on the Discovery Channel or something? <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Well, that would be Wagon Masters, right? Like yeah. because it's people whose job it is to yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, when I saw Wagon Master, there was one actor in particular. He played the villain, and I was like, "Who's this guy? And what is what's he doing? Like he's." he's bringing a lot of like a very modern sensibility to this Western made in in 1950 or thereabouts. And he plays the, the spoilers for Scarlet street, I guess he plays the woman's, uh, the wife's husband who was thought to be dead. And then he shows up. His name is Charles Kemper. Okay. And there's a reason that we don't know much about him because he died young. He died in 1951. Uh, I think he was probably in his uh, late forties, early fifties. Um, and he'd acted quite a bit up until then, but not in a lot of movies that I know about or, right. or have talked about. And then I see, Oh, his character's name is uncle Shiloh Clegg. Yes. In Wagon master. That's a, that's a character it, name. Right it now. is. And, and he, he's only got a couple of scenes in Scarlet street, but just the way he carries himself, especially cause he's primarily talking to Edward G. Robinson. And this is not a slam on Edward G. Robinson, mm-hmm. but we all know, whether it be him or Cagney or, or Catherine Hepburn or Cary Grant, like that old, that old Hollywood style of acting of like, you have just a very, it's not an affectation. Like that's actually how energy Robinson spoke. Um, yeah, but there is a real like definitive quality to his style of acting. Charles Kemper shows up and it just looks it looks like a completely different school of acting. It, it, there's such a modern quality to it. Um, even though the character he's playing is someone that should in many ways just be reduced down to his basic essence, but just the choices that he makes as an actor, it's the kind of thing I, I tweeted about this. Like I've now, and of course I had seen Scarlet street before, but, and, and I probably took note of his character in that. But, um, but in watching it this time, I was like, man, there's, there's something going on here with this performance. 
And I was like, mm. and I feel like I've seen this guy before. And then I looked and saw that, oh, he's this, this guy that I also took note of in Wagon Master. And I was like, I think I need to go back and watch all of this guy's, uh, like a lot of this guy's performances, well, because I think that he, he, he might just based on these two, he might be like one of my favorite actors of that period. Can I, cause now I'm obsessed. Sure. Let me read off some of the character names that Charles Kemper has played. Sure. Played. Well, I mean, Homer Higgins is his character in Scarlet Street. Mm-hmm. Not a bad name. Uh, Phineas Aloysius Higby. Yep. Yeah, that's in a movie called Angel Comes to Brooklyn. Uh, I'm not going to read all the movie names. Uh, Father Dickie Ball. Uh, oh, Herbert Jothan. Okay. Sheriff Kiskaden. Peaceful Jones. Emmett <laughs> Mulvey. Deputy Gaffer. Walrus. Thomas Arkansas Jones. Crawford Gowrie. Sheriff Dyke Merrick. Uh, <laughs> it all, um, yeah. uh, Sheriff Willie Clare, Pop Daly, and in a movie, 1950 movie called The Ticket to Tomahawk, he played a character named Chuckity. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> That's very strange. Uh, but yeah, so obviously Scarlet Street's a great movie in general. Um, but in watching it, like, again, my takeaways were just like, oh, there's an there's an almost gleefully perverse quality to uh, his home life. Uh, but then also Charles Kemper, like being like, I need to I need to really go deeper into like his filmography. Um, all right. Well, sorry, I just got some uh, bad news. Uh, <laughs> Do you want to take a break? Uh, no, no, I'm just for us or okay. uh, our our guest for next week. Oh, okay. Got it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we got to find a new guest. All right. All right. Um, that's, well, now we know, and knowing is half the but, battle. Um, you know, what that the opposite of, uh, you talked about Scarlet street, like how, um, his horrible life, like pushes him into the arms mm-hmm. of the femme fatale. Uh, I was thinking about, it's not a great, it's not one of the all time great nors, but, uh, I often think about pitfall. Um, because that's a movie where, I can't remember the actor. I can picture him, uh, the guy from Pitfall. Oh, well, I can't think of the actor's name, but he's like his, his home life is fine. He's just bored and restless. Yeah. And then he meets Elizabeth Scott, which like, you know, I understand she's, sure. she's Elizabeth Scott, but, um, yeah, I, I, that's one of the things that always stuck with me about Pitfall is that it's like from the beginning, it, like it's not like this guy and this is kind of true with uh double indemnity too where it's like you, you look back and you go in retrospect like oh maybe he wasn't ever a great guy double indemnity yeah. especially um but uh in this one it's like from the beginning it's like yeah this guy kind of sucks yeah. <laughs> um uh uh we, we're not it's it's hard to be on his side and that's maybe why pitfall is one of my favorite noirs but it's also a very fascinating yeah uh, thing or maybe the Again, maybe the movie is just supposed to be a testament to the seductive power of Elizabeth Scott. Sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move on to my um, next two. They kind of go together. I mean, they very much go together. Uh, the first one is a rewatch. I rewatched 2019's The Souvenir, which I oh, haven't yes. seen, hadn't seen since Sundance 2019. So, mm-hmm. it's, been, uh, so it's been close to th- three years at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I rewatched uh, the, the, the Souvenir um, it's for a movie I hadn't seen in so long. It's amazing how well I remembered, uh, remembered it. I've only seen it once three years ago. I'm, I know there are some people who like, 
and some of them, uh, you know, listen to this podcast, um, who have amazing memories for movies. I'm not one of those people. Um, I remember like broad things and, and little things, but there's, uh, it was amazing to me how much of the movie I, I remembered. Um, and, and how, um, how, uh, uh, amazingly like gentle and artful and yet completely bold and confident the, the movie is the opposite of what Frank Kranz does by the end of, right. of mass. There's, um, the movie has some, uh, flourishes, but they're very, they're used very sparingly. Mostly the movie has like, all right, this is going to be, this is our framing scheme. This is our lighting scheme. This is what the movie is going to, to be. And it's, um, uh, uh, a masterclass in in editing i think with with that the way the movie m- moves along and also you know just two uh great lead performances by honor swintenburn and and tom burke um i'm not sure what else new to say about the the souvenir i guess that's um unlike he was scarlet street it's not like oh i hadn't noticed this before i didn't make me think of new things necessarily it was just like yeah this movie's close to perfect hmm. <laughs> um uh, and, and, and yeah, I, I, I really, really loved watching it again. And then companion, the souvenir part two, uh, which, uh, like mass doesn't come out for a few weeks, but again, this was a public screening through the American Cinematheque um, that was not sold out, which I was weirdly, I was surprised but that there were still, uh, some empty seats in the house. Cause I would have, I guess I live in a world where the souvenir part two is right. like the event of the season. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I, what I will say is that I'm the souvenir part two, not just a clever title. It picks up immediately after the events of part one. And I'm very glad that the American Cinematheque did it as a double feature because it definitely is a movie that assumes that you remember exactly what happened. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I mean, I'm not saying if you've seen the souvenir you'll be able to follow the souvenir part two, but the weird things like you might not have remembered till the Swinton's character making a casual offhand comment that she was thinking about taking a, a ceramics class, but like that, that comes up in the, in the second part, um, which makes sense. Like watching them all together, it, uh, it didn't feel weird. It was like, Oh yeah. Cause I just saw her say that, you know, an hour and five minutes ago or whatever. Um, uh, so yeah, I, that little note, uh, if you have a chance to rewatch the souvenir, it would probably help, but again, you'll still be able to, 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 to follow it. But it's also, it's not just that it picks up immediately. It's that, um, the souvenir part two is not like, it's not just the, the character's name, uh, is, uh, Julie, right? Cause direct, it's, they're so like, it's clearly based on like, it's someone semi-autobiographical the director's name is joanna hogg and her name i think is julia hart mm. it's julia you know i can't remember um this isn't just the further adventures of her like this the souvenir part two deals with the aftermath of what happened in the souvenir part one and it does so um so organically that um i found myself thinking like it's weird that i ever thought that it weird that I ever didn't know there was going to be a part two. It, like in re- having seen part two, part one seems incomplete now, which it didn't at the time. Cause it tells a whole story. Um, but, uh, part two is it continues some of that. Um, a, a lot of that, that control, but it goes a little, it gets a little wilder. Mm-hmm. The, the, the little like 
flourishes of idiosyncratic filmmaking that um, that pop up in the souvenir. There's different kinds, and there's more of them. Um, uh, there, there, there's more uh, like arch filmmaking at certain points as opposed to just like the um the 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 steady camera there's uh different there's a lot of different things that i don't want to want to get into the movie is also surprisingly given that i said it deals with the aftermath of what happens in the souvenir which i don't think you saw right even though it was in my top 10 list um that year surprisingly given what it deals with the souvenir part two is funnier than the first one the first one has like um Funny, you know, it has real people who seem real and they say funny things. Um, and so there are chuckles in the first one, but there's like in the, in the theater, there was like laughter, like in, hmm. uh, in, in, in part two, um, uh, a lot of it coming from So, uh, the actor, uh, uh the comedic actor, I know you know who this is, Richard Ayode. You know? Oh, oh, uh, uh, I, I maybe I don't Either know. Either way, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you say his name. He has one scene in the Souvenir Part One. That character is back a lot in the Souvenir Part Two. And given how funny he is as an actor, don't be surprised that a lot of the funny stuff comes yeah. comes from him. Um, uh, 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 like uh, he's he plays a filmmaker who's making a musical, and 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 he's being interviewed and like asked like Why are you making a musical? He's like, and he's like they're literally standing in the rain and he's like, wouldn't you know, <laughs> like this is where we live. Wouldn't you want to see a widescreen technical musical except uh, instead of a movie where it's fucking drizzling, like every other <laughs> fucking English film ever made. <laughs> um, and he's got a lot of uh, funny lines like that. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't want to go. This is, uh, I'll say that the souvenir part two is my new favorite movie of, 2021 um i don't want to go into too much uh, more detail just like absolutely see it uh and and uh, uh again the the story feels like it wasn't complete in, until until this uh yeah i, I don't want to say much much more because i'm still processing it uh my next film is uh, not 100 percent sure how you say his last name uh chris Ayers, uh smoke signals um, oh. A film that I haven't seen in in a while. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it's probably been twenty years for me. Yeah, it's it's a nineteen ninety eight movie. Made a big splash at the time for several reasons, not the least of which uh, is that it is uh, a film by and about Native Americans, uh, and not like a situation, not like a, a period film or anything like that. It is like the 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 lives of you know in some cases a day in the life but there's a there's a specific story to it um of you know modern native americans on an indian reservation and mm-hmm. that sort of thing and so uh i'd seen it before i haven't seen it for yes quite a while and some things are better than i remember uh and some things are worse like when you watch it it's like yes, there is the novel. There is the novelty of of the perspective uh, and the representation, but it is still a '90s independent film. Okay, and you and it shows. Like there are certain musical cues. There are a couple. Not thankfully, not many. There is a couple moments of of quirk that I 
just like rolled my eyes at and I was just grateful that like most of my students are too young to remember this. And so they, it might, it might feel very original to them, but like there are these two like young women who are supporting characters at best. Like they really only show up a little uh, for Mm -hmm. a a couple minutes, but uh, their car like only goes in reverse. Uh, So like they're driving in reverse everywhere. Yeah. That feels very 90s quirky, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, 90s indie quirky, pardon right. me. Uh, but, so, you know, it's stuff like that. Where it's like, and that, none of that is, is necessarily a mark against it so much as it is. It just, it dates it a little bit for, for me. Um, but the the acting really stood out to me this time. I, I always, I mean, I, I remember really liking a lot of those performances. And then, unsurprisingly, uh, you and I are fans of Gary Farmer. We really yeah. like him as an actor, and his character is never actually on screen in like uh, present day because it is the it's his off screen death that like kind of starts everything okay. off. Um, but we see him in flashbacks, uh, and then flashbacks within flashbacks, and man, it's just such a such a fully realized, deeply flawed character who you so badly want to root for uh and sometimes he gives you reason to and sometimes he doesn't and given that we see him in flashbacks and that uh there is a character who who, who demonizes the character uh the 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 Gary Farmer character and then there's another who's who uh idealizes him like that colors his performance and so he has to create uh a sense of continuity between those two things knowing that we are seeing him through different lenses and it's uh, I, I like all the performances. I think Al, uh, Adam Beach does a really great job. And then what's his name? Uh, I think his name's Evan Evan Adams, who who plays uh, the other lead. But uh, again, unsurprisingly, Gary Farmer just brings yeah. a great deal of humanity to his character. Uh, all right, two more for me, uh, and then I'll be done, and you'll do one more. All right. Um, <clears throat> Uh, another um, older movie that's gotten a new restoration is uh, Hester Street, directed by the late Joan Micklin Silver. Um, so I watched that the new restoration of that the other night, um, and uh, uh, I really, uh, really liked the movie a lot. Uh, it's t- it takes place. Uh, I'm not actually very. I'm not good on. Uh, uh, if it's like late 1800s, early 1900s, but around turn of, turn of the century in New York City, um, the main character uh, is Stephen Keats, and he's, um, I can't remember what country, but he's a, a Jew from, you know, one of the old countries. I can't mm-hmm. remember if it's Poland or Russia or where he's, where he's from, but he's, uh, he's moved to, to uh, New York City and is establishing a life there, and the idea is he's going to set, you know, um, uh, send for his wife and child once he's established life there. And so he does. And, 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 and she comes over but by the time she, she, she's played by Carol Kane. And by the time she arrives, um, uh, Stephen Keats character, whose real name is, I think Yakel or Yankel, okay. um, has goes by Jake and is like, he has become Americanized. Mm. And, uh, Gittle, Carol Kane's character, is still very much of the old country and also still very devout. Hmm. And so um, he is like, uh, uh, you know, meets his son for the first time since he was like a baby. And he's like, your name's not, 
uh, what is it? Yesula or anymore? You know, you're just going to be Joey and like, he's trying to get his wife to not wear a wig and, and like, uh, uh, it's, um, there's a lot of, of, of tension and, and, you know, question of what it means to be in New York, what it means to be an American, what it means to be a Jew. Uh, but the movie is also a great, um, John Nicklin Silver had a really, uh, um, casually, uh, confident hand with a sense of, of place and community. If you look at, um, uh, crossing Delancey is one of the movie that's, uh, um, set in the, you know, the present day or the present day when it was made. Um, but it also in the New York Jewish community, but then, um, she also made, uh, what's it called between the lines, which is about a, um, Boston, uh, alt weekly like <laughs> newspaper. And that has a, a huge cast. And there's just like, so like, juggling all of these, these, these things. Um, she's, a, uh, really fantastic about that. That's really, um, what I take away from the movie. Not this, like, it's not like a dialectic about identity. It has that going on, but really it's just like an immersive, uh, an immersive, uh, um, experience in this, in this time and place. Uh, Carol Kane. I mean, I know she very early in her career became like, a comedy person. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's just, so it's interesting to see her in a very much a not comedic role, uh, here also in a not comedic role, someone who would go on to be known for comedy, uh, Doris Roberts, oh. um, plays, um, uh, another woman who lives in the same, like, uh, tenement building that they live in. Who's uh, like also like assimilated, but also is more still practicing more than Jake is. So she like tries to becomes a mentor to Gittle tries to say like, you know, you can still be a practicing Jew and not wear a wig, you know? Right. Um, uh, uh, and then the last thing I'll say another, uh, there's a lawyer played by an actor named Robert Lesser. And I was like, this guy is so familiar. I, I like you with, uh, with, uh, Homer Higgins, yeah. <laughs> which is Charles Kemper. I was like, the, what, what do I know this guy is from? He's so familiar. Uh, and then I realized he's the guy at the beginning of Die Hard who tells Bruce Willis oh, to take off his shoes okay, and socks yeah. and make fists with your toes. Fist with your toes. Um, anyway, so he's in and he plays a lawyer. So yeah, that's uh, Hester Street. Um, and uh, that is, I think, out this week um, in like uh, certain places, the, the new restoration. And then final movie for me which i just watched last night i want to make sure i get the name right so yeah letterbox is a li- it's a 1979 spanish film letterbox has it has it listed as rapture but the title that i was given a press screen or two in the on-screen title is the spanish word uh Erbato, a-r-r-e-b-a-t-o but it means rapture um and this is another new like uh, restoration. And this movie is fucking great and fucking crazy. Hmm. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's a there's a I guess the framing device or at least the, is that there's a uh, a guy who makes horror movies. He's a Spanish filmmaker who uh, makes horror movies, but he also is obsessed. He's also a heroin addict, which comes up a lot. Uh, but also he's obsessed with his ex girlfriend's cousin that he knew. And so most of the story is most of the movie takes place in like his memory, like a flashback. And, and by the end of the movie, this cousin is really more the main character who was like this weird eccentric, who was obsessed with cinema 
obsessed with filming things and was obsessed with filming himself sleep. Um, yeah, he, he was obsessed with the idea of looking at the same image, uh, for a long period of time. He has this whole thing about like, uh, you remember, I don't know if they still, they probably don't still make these for kids cause you know, they have the internet and everything, but you and I probably had when, when you were a kid, there'd be like trading card sets for like a movie, you know? Oh yeah. So they're talking about the trading. They grew up, they both like have in common or he's, he asks like, what was your favorite trading card set as a movie as a, as a kid? Uh, and the director, uh, guy says King Solomon's minds. And he like has that. And is like, so we're looking at these pictures like Deborah Carr or whatever. And he's like, he's like, how long could you look at one of these years, centuries? Like he's, uh, um, and there's another part where he like, uh, um, challenges a woman to sit and stare at a Betty Boop doll for two hours. <laughs> She's also on heroin at the time. So it's like, sure. Maybe comes a little easier, uh, to her, but it's just this obsession with imagery and with taking things, taking things, things in, um, looking at, at, at things and the same, like, uh, um, so I think that all of that being very much a, very much a movie about cinephilia yeah. about like making this comparison to the, um, not subtle comparison to the, uh, what I'm told is the euphoria of heroin and that of watching of cinema of watching a movie. Like, Sounds fascinating. um, but also in, in addition, like that's all, like will uh, appeal to people like, like us. The, also the movie just has a bunch of crazy shit in it. Uh, uh, too. There's, um, uh, yeah, there's that, there's a great scene where the woman who, after having stared at a, a torn Betty Boop doll for, for two hours, then dresses up like Betty Boop and does a whole musical number. <laughs> this movie is so much fun and, and so crazy. I'm so glad that uh, it's been restored. Erabato. Okay. Uh, so my last film, and I won't say much about it um, is uh, Christopher Nolan's Memento, which tends to be the film that I show my classes when we get to the uh, class on editing. Um, oh, okay. I show clips from Potemkin and I show uh, a scene from the Limey and then I compare fight, fight scenes from Born Supremacy and Haywire uh, to oh. show like differences in editing. Of course, it's I funny. talk about the... Then you mentioned Born Supremacy. Okay. Because in my editing class in film school, mm-hmm. we had an assignment where it was like, bring in a clip of a movie you think has good editing. And I brought in um, the clip from the Born Identity, the Clive Owen scene like, yeah. with the farmhouse, which is so great. And I remember my like fellow students like, really? The Born Identity? And it's like weird to look back and think like, oh, there was a time... When the Born Identity was new, it was seen as this, it was not respected among like yeah. movie people. Um, whereas I, I think that, um, that franchise certainly went on to, uh, be, a, uh, something that people very much look forward to and, and respected up and, at least up until the, they rude, they came back and made a fourth one that's terrible. Yeah. Did you ever see, uh, Jason Bourne? No, nor yeah. did I see what is the Bourne legacy. Uh, I Renner? saw the Bourne legacy. It's not very good either. It's yeah. better than Jason Bourne. I'll say, sure. but, uh, but, um, uh, yeah, that first, the Doug Lyman Bourne identity, uh, yeah. uh, is not just some, you know, uh, matinee, you know, popcorn movie. It's, yeah. uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, but it's just, it's just a weird to think, 
that there was a time when Born Identities knew that it was seen as disposable. Well, seen by asshole 19, 20 year old <laughs> film school students. But I was saying that's who we were. We liked it. We just that's knew. That's true. We're just smarter. We just knew better. Yeah. Oh, okay. Again, have you, I guess have you picked it. up on that? <laughs> We've been doing this fucking podcast for 14 years. Oh, that's yeah, that's true. You they know. don't let you do a podcast unless you know what you're talking <laughs> exactly. about. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not saying objectively we know what we're talking about. I'm saying we think we know what we're talking about. Right. We're, we're confident enough. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, I, it, Memento is a film that I, I see every few years because of, uh, because of my, uh, syllabus and, you know, I made it and I don't want to deviate from it. Um, that's not true. There was a class that was, cause most of my classes are three hours. Um, and so I, I have to try and keep the movies we watched it like two hours or less. So that there's time for a lecture and time for Q and a, uh, after or discussion afterwards. Um, but there was a class that was a couple years ago that was like four and a half hours. And I'm like, son of a bitch for editing. You know what? JFK, this is what we're doing. Oh, um, oh. and, uh, you know, the students seem, seemed interested. This was one of my high school classes. I don't, maybe I shouldn't have assaulted them with that film, but whatever. <laughs> um, but, uh, Wait, you were allowed to show high schoolers JFK. Uh, it was, a uh, they were seniors. Uh, okay. and yeah, but like I'm teaching a high school class now and they're all high school freshmen. And so in that case, no, I could not. Okay. Um, but okay. So, uh, with Memento in watching it, you know, we, we all have like a very specific opinion about Christopher Nolan now. And I think for the most part, that's right. Uh, <laughs> that, that there is, I don't think anybody considers him a hack or anything, but I think they see that there's just, there's such a self seriousness to him that I think has always been there. But I also appreciate his level of ambition. Like there's a lot about tenant. I don't like, but there are certain sequences like, well, you can't argue with the effectiveness of some of these sequences. Um, same with interstellar and even inception, which neither you nor I particularly like. Um, yeah. And you go back to Memento, and it's like, and there's still ambition there uh, in the storytelling and just making sure that he keeps it straight. Maybe so much, maybe in my view, I feel like the everything is almost too linear, even when it's nonlinear uh, in that film. It's not nearly as chaotic as I imagine it would need to be to really capture what that would be like. But uh, it's it's ambitious storytelling, and I think he pulls it off very well. And there's really only three main characters in that movie. And the thing that I came away thinking was, boy, I sure would love if Christopher Nolan came back to this. Mm -hmm. I think he sees himself as because he can tell big stories uh, as far as the studio goes and getting financing and stuff because he can. I think he feels like he should. Meanwhile, Memento and to a lesser extent following, but like insomnia and even something like the prestige, which is, is, is a slightly bigger movie, but it's not interstellar. It's not Dunkirk. Uh, and I just feel like, boy, I would love if he went back, uh, and did something on the scale of Memento because I'd like to see if he could do it again. Uh, or if there's just, if he's just, he has a certain type of ambition of scale if he just can't turn that off and suddenly a smaller movie would just become big almost by default because he can't not do that. Um, but that's something I'm always thinking is like, Oh, I'd love to see so-and-so make a movie in this genre. That's so not their thing. Or I'd like to see, 
and this is something we see all the time when it comes to you know Marvel movies in Hollywood like this uh, director who specializes in smaller movies like what would they do with a really big budget uh, but in his case like I'd love to see him go back to the scale of following or memento or even insomnia and just see what he could do with it but i just i don't think he's ever going to i think he's gotten to a certain level and that's all he's ever going to do 